Welcome to the show. You're listening to Sensensor.com, Feel Your Heart podcast. We have a great show for you in line today. We interviewed Helena, who is a lead trainer in emotional focus therapy, the most successful couples therapy, which is based on more than a decade of research. And today you'll learn what the causes of most relationship conflicts and how to break that cycle and instead create intimacy and love. The foundation for relationship that flourish is really trust and safety, but we are not really taught how to create that. So stick to the end and you'll get a simple exercise that make relationships flourish. And also check out the one hour free webinar on sensensor.com where you'll learn how you can have both freedom and be a team at the same time. How you can banish the boredom and rekindle that excitement of being newly in love how you can have hot sex and connected sex, and also how you can substitute resentment and disconnect for lasting love. Now, let's head over to the interview. Hey, Helena, thank you for coming on this podcast today. I'm really excited to have you on here, and hopefully we can help people get more of an understanding of what emotional focus therapy actually is. I also want to give a short introduction of who you are. So to listeners out there, Helena is a relationship counselor and also a certified emotional focus couple therapist and supervisor. And I think in connection with your work, Helena, attachment theory is often mentioned. So could you maybe explain a bit more about what that actually is? Attachment is really that wired in longing to connect with significant others mm. and the fear of losing that connection. So we are programmed from birth, from the cradle to the grave. We're programmed for relationships. We're programmed to love. We're programmed to relate. And that longing is wired in. And also the fear of losing that connection is wired in. So when we talk about attachment, that is it in a nutshell, the longing to connect and the fear of losing that connection. I love that. Thank you. Actually, this was really important to clarify because I think often we grow up thinking that these are needs we have as a child and as an adult, we shouldn't have these needs. And I often found that there's a lot of shame and stigmatism because people are categorized as needy rather than maybe getting an understanding of why our partner might have this anxious attachment and how we might be able to help them heal that and feel more safely attached. And I think this is where I found the beauty of emotional focus therapy, that instead of judging other people, we can actually really help each other heal and that will also improve the relationship. And it's a unique thing that we can give each other in a relationship that we can't actually give to ourselves, right? And this is what I found so beautiful about this. Yes. I mean, if you really understand it as a why, we need attachment in the same way we need oxygen, in the same way we need water. If, you, if we really understand that it's a survival code that's wired in and that our brain codes it as a life and death matter like that connection our brain codes anything that threatens that connection as a life and death matter and if we really get that then we can understand a lot of the ways we react and it begins to make sense mm. emotions that are involved here yeah and you know i just love the way you put this because for me it's a fundamental different way of looking at the world I think we live in a world that's very much focused on individuality, right? And we glorify this idea of being individual and not needing other people. And I think one of the things that was really so fundamental for me in starting to understand emotional focus therapy and attachment theory was the acknowledgement and acceptance that we do need other people. I was always told this idea that we should just learn to you know, love yourself and not need others. And suddenly I realized that we are social creatures. 
this is part of our biology and this idea that we should just be on our own and not need others it's simply not true and there's nothing wrong in needing others because we're able to actually give each other these healing and wonderful experience that we actually can't do on our own Exactly. I mean, it's like we grow in the soil of our connection with others, right? Mm. That's the way we grow in that in the soil of our connection with others. And, you know, without that soil, without that connection with others, we just don't thrive. Mm. Yes, we can, we can survive, but we don't thrive. And it's really accepting that it's your biology, like you can't fight biology, right? Mm. Anyone who's suffered a heartbreak, knows that this is true right yeah <laughs> knows that we need other people and there is it's not needy it's not weak it's not something to be ashamed of it's the way we're programmed yeah it's the way we survive i mean no human baby would survive without a caregiver right yeah. to love and care for it and somehow we think that as we grow that we suddenly don't need that i mean it just becomes more mutual right with children and parents is more one way mm. the parent providing the care and as we become adults it's a healthy relationship is a two way you know you've got my back i've got your back but yeah. we still need someone to have our back yeah and it's such a wonderful way to also heal each other Part of my training has also been somatically and how to heal different traumas and most severe traumas are actually inflicted by other human beings because it's a breach of trust in other humans and in our own nervous system. And the way to heal that I found, unlike what a lot of people would say to me when I wasn't aware of this, they would say, you've got to do it yourself. And I realized that it has to be healed socially because restoring that trust in others can only happen through work with others and not by me just sitting on my own. Well, exactly. You're totally right about that, uh, Thomas, because the thing is we are wounded in relationships, like you say, and we are also healed in relationships. Mm. That's a wonderful analogy. And I think one thing that I wanted to ask as well, because I read some different studies online, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but as far as I understand, emotional focus therapy has actually been shown to be the most effective couple therapist method out there. At the moment, I think they mention about 70% success rate, which is incredible. And I wonder, what do you think is the core of why emotional focus therapy has been found to be this successful compared to other couple therapist methods? I think it's, because it's definitely down to attachment. Because that's the focus, that and emotions, the emotions related to attachment, we get to the heart of the matter. Like you can teach people communication skills, you can teach, give people all kinds of homework to do, but most of us can go to the office and communicate quite well with our colleagues, friends. And yet when we come home, you know, the slightest, the tone, a look, something can just trigger a reaction in us, right? If you do not look at it through attachment lens, if you don't look at the emotions that are driving these responses, you, people learn those skills, those communication skills, but then when they're triggered, it goes out the window. Mm. The brain is offline, right? So what we are doing is we are getting to the attachment. We're getting to the heart of the matter. And we're using emotions as the target and the agent of change. And when things, people have these deep emotional, corrective emotional experiences, it just changes the system. Mm -hmm. It changes the way to communicate. It reduces the threat, the alarm bells that go off in the brain, right? And it just changes the way people are with each other because they feel safe with each other. 
so I think, you know, EFT has so many, um, so there's so many empirical studies that have been done and research, but ultimately it's because we get to the heart of the matter. Again, I think this is an important point because I studied with my ex-wife, Nonviolent Communication, and I think there's a lot of good tools in that book. So this is not the discarded at all, but it just didn't work for us, and I did not understand why. And after I then discovered emotional focus therapy and attachment theory, it totally made sense. Because like you said, once we're fundamentally triggered because we feel unsafe and we feel we might be abandoned or whatever we might fear loss, then none of these communication skills really work in that moment because we're triggered. We're not able to communicate in a calm way as a book says we should. And I think being able to understand our own attachment styles and what triggers us is so wonderful because once we can then deal with those, then we're able to go in and use other tools like nonviolent communication, etc. But they only really work when we're able to deal with the fundamental triggers and the feeling of not feeling safe. Yeah, I mean, in Sue Johnson, in her book, The Love Secret, she talks about Charles Darwin, how he would go to the London Zoo and he would go to the, the the place, the cage where the puff adder was, and he would stand in front of that glass panel, and he would try to see if his rational brain could override his emotional brain. Like, he knew for sure that if you look at an adder in the eye, it will strike the glass, but he knew that he couldn't break the glass. His rational brain knew that, and he wanted to see if his rational brain could override his emotional brain, whether he could stop himself from flinching and jumping back. But he never could. His emotional brain was there to keep him alive. His brain would, his emotional brain would react, override the rational brain, and he would jump right back. And it's the same. If you think about it, attachment in terms of life and death, mm. your emotional brain is saying, danger, anything that threatens that connection, danger. And it doesn't matter all the skills you know. If the bond is threatened, your emotional brain takes over, which is why the important thing is to work on that deep emotional level and change things at that level because that's that's what goes offline, right, when you're triggered. And I guess this is also why logic doesn't work until you have established safety, right? Like you said, because the logic simply goes offline when you're triggered. And again, this is why, I guess, especially for a lot of men that I speak to find this frustrating where they say, oh, but I explained to her logically, why does she not get it? And I think they're really obviously missing that point that, you know, they could avoid a lot of frustration if they could just understand that we must speak to the emotional brain and we must engage and create safety before we're able to come up with any kind of logical, rational solutions to any kind of problems, really. Yes, and that's what we work with in, 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 in EFT. We work with helping people really get in touch with those vulnerable feelings that are driving their reactions. Mm. And a lot of times people, it's out of conscious awareness. It's like it's coping strategies people learned in childhood mm. or in previous relationships, right? And so, you know, it's just like you do it. You don't even think, you react, right? And in, in emotionally focused therapy, we slow it right down and help people get in touch with those very vulnerable feelings that are being triggered underneath the reactivity or underneath the withdrawal and numbing out. Mm. And when people have, you know, a help to really slow it down and make those links between how they cope with, you know, their fears, their pain, their hurt, and how the very thing they do to cope with that is actually what scares their partner and triggers their own alarm system. 
then couples begin to see how inadvertently they co-create a cycle that keeps them both vulnerable, scared, unsafe. And yeah. once you start to see that and you, we start to slow it down and recognize that pattern as the enemy, not your partner, then you can start to reclaim your relationship. These cycles that you touched on was a big revelation for me because now I can see these patterns in myself and people around me. I can see how I got stuck in these with my ex-wife and how one would trigger the other. We just take the example of someone who is avoidant and prefer to deal with things himself and retrieve when they're stressed versus someone who wants to reach out and feel secure and how this dynamic of one reaching out makes the other one retrieve even more, triggering the one who just needs to be told that they're safe and reassured. And that lack of safety then makes the anxious one lash out and try and control even more. And that way they keep being stuck in this cycle where one feels controlled and the other one feels unsafe. And... It's often the person who say, oh, I want more freedom. And the other one who obviously get more and more anxious because they can't get that validation that they're safe. And it can be so simple to create that safety that then makes a more anxious one not having the need to control and therefore balance is restored. But not knowing these patterns will just make the pattern repeat itself until the relationship eventually get destroyed. Yes, it... It basically sucks sucks all the juice out of the relationship and it just gradually makes it such an unsafe place to be. Mm-hmm. Like you lose your safe other. Yeah. And once yeah. and once you don't feel safe with each other anymore. I mean, most couples, if you ask them what was it like when they met each other, what was it they liked about each other, a lot of people would say, I felt at ease, I could be myself, mm-hmm. right? I felt at home. But once these patterns get activated and often inadvertently, um, or I should say inevitably, right? Um, you start to scare each other inadvertently, right? And and then once that safety is lost, couples get more and more reactive before, you know, the need to pursue increases, the need to withdraw increases, and then you're just caught in a loop. And it just feels like there's no exit. It's like the M25, you can't find your exit. <laughs> this is kind of how I describe in a metaphor when people say, what is EFT? I'll say it's kind of like a, the foundation of your relationship. If you want to build a house, you don't go build it on a steep volcano with a steep and muddy surface because the house will eventually collapse, right? You want to find a good, stable surface where it can be strong and where it's not going to be shaken. Um, And yeah, it's a bit what EFT is for me, really. It sets a foundation for everything else. And if you don't get this foundation right, you might be a great builder. You might build a beautiful house, but it will eventually collapse. Well, that is a powerful analogy. But yes, something like that. You know, if you do not even, because the patterns are so insidious, most couples don't even recognize that they're in a pattern, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the, the if you're somebody that likes to withdraw or just sort of avoid conflict, you start to perceive your partner as angry and hostile and demanding yeah. when actually they wouldn't be reaching out they wouldn't be so protesting, as we, we call it. They wouldn't be protesting the loss of connection if they didn't care, if they didn't value their partner. There would be no need to protest the loss of connection. And ironically, there would be no need to withdraw if you didn't find your partner so important that actually any hint that they might be displeased with you or find you inadequate or lacking in any way would be scary, right? So it's just that we trigger each other touch these vulnerable raw spots, as Susan Johnson calls it in her book, Hold Me Tight, these raw 
tender places inside of us. And it only happens because actually we care enough about each other that our brain says this is important. Yeah, and you know, I think this is so interesting because it's not only, of course, the focus on my podcast is more on romantic relationships, but I've seen this even in a dynamic with children. My friend who's a wonderful dad, basically his wife just left the country and to some extent abandoned the children, which has been quite traumatizing for them. And his daughter has reached out and had a lot of anger outbursts in response to that, which makes a lot of sense. And I guess, of course, it's very challenging and triggering for him, you know, when you're told that your child hates you or want you to go away. But I said exactly what you said now, that maybe if you look at it and don't actually listen to the words, because it doesn't hate you. But what she's saying is actually that she's trying to reach out and you're actually the one person that she feels safe enough to express that to. So actually it's a compliment, if anything. She's saying you're the last person I feel safe enough to express my anger with without fearing that you'll go away. And just for him to see that change his response. So now he was able to be calm with her and stay with her. And instead of saying, you go away, he could stay and say, you know what? I'm not going to go away. I love you. And I hear you're scared and I'll give you your space, but I'll be here whenever you want me. And that has really calmed her down and being able to flourish much better again. So even just being like you just said, and that's a point I want to re-emphasize, you said it actually shows that they care when they lash out. So rather than being or feeling attacked, we could see that as, wow, this person really care. And they have a need that's obviously not being met, that they're trying to say, please hear my need. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can picture your friend's child. If the mother has left, she's testing, are you going to be there? Are you going to leave me? Can I count on you to be here, right? Yeah. That's exactly what I told him. That's literally exactly that. You're right. And I see, you know, if I push the boundaries, are you going to go away? Are you going to stay? Can I depend on you? Mm. Can I depend on you to stay and be here, right? And if you don't understand the behavior, if we can't reframe and make sense of the behavior, of course, the only human reaction is to get upset and angry because it just, you know, what else can you do? I mean, we're all human, right? So I just really want to say, I mean, when a partner is protesting or what we call pursuing, it doesn't look pretty. You know, it sounds like criticism. It sounds like complaints. It sounds like you're never there. It sounds like, you know, you're always late. You know, why don't you do this? And why don't you never do that? I mean, I know it doesn't sound pretty, (laughs) you know, and it sounds like anger sometimes and hostility. So, of course, it makes sense that it's hard to, in the moment of being triggered, Uh, to recognize it but it does help to sort of you know when things have calmed down to be it helps towards the repair and I really really emphasize for my couples that it all this is only happening because this person cares enough to protest to actually be upset about the lack of connection right Mm -hmm. because uh and and the partner would not take it to heart and not be so hurt and reactive and defensive about being criticized or whatever if they didn't care enough (laughs) right? It wouldn't even hurt, right? I mean, distance is actually more deadly for relationships, right? But what we're trying to do is to make it safe enough for couples to share their underbelly, to share their insides. So rather than lash out, a person learns to say, when it seems like you're not there, you're not interested, I get really scared, I get really anxious, I'm afraid you don't care anymore. But that requires a sense of safety to show your underbelly. And 
you know, when you don't feel safe, you get scared. Maybe this will be used against me, it'll be weaponized against me, right? I know this from my own experience. If I feel attacked and get triggered, like you said, I would push away. But I think now being able to recognize this, what I do instead is I thank them. And if I'm triggered, I say thank you for expressing yourself. I really appreciate that you care so much. And I'll say I just need a couple of moments to calm myself down because then I'll be able to listen to you much better. I think the fact that just being able to recognize when we're triggered ourselves um, because obviously often we don't know we're triggered, so we just react so fast, right? And what I've learned through EFT and my somatic work is that I can notice in my body really quickly because for me my stomach gets tense, and then I know I need to ask for a short break, but I also reassure my partner and say I will be back. I say I just need a short moment to calm myself down so I can hear you, and then I'll be back, and that normally keeps me... Uh, keeps my my partner calm as well because they know that I will come back and I'm not actually abandoning them. Exactly. I mean, you know, John Gottman in in his Love Lab test, right? Mm. You know, when he would sh- uh, the, these couples would would be plugged to heart monitors, and you know, the partner that looked completely calm on the outside while the other one was protesting, they're physiologically they were just through the roof, right? So, you know, it just goes to show that, yes, if you know, if you understand it, then you can give your partner space to just calm down and regulate. It doesn't mean they don't care. Often when we talk about this in, say, for instance, hold me tight workshops, couples will say, well, this person looks completely cold and indifferent. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of energy to hold in your emotions to look that cold to look that indifferent, right? Yeah. It takes a lot of physiological energy. So it, but once you start to understand, it gets easier to actually say, okay, this person just needs space to regulate themselves because I am that important to them that I have such an enormous impact on them. So true. I wonder, um, Elena, do you have, I don't know if you're actually allowed to share this, but is there any way that you could share one or two stories about couples that you worked with in the past and how they change their relationship around um, without actually mentioning their names. If that's something you could do, I think it could really help people see how this process actually works. Well, I am. I have to be very general, but you know, because obviously I have to honor my couples and their stories. But there is one couple I've told them that I I use as a case study, and and they know because they were just. They are my, <laughs> they are the couple that I keep in mind when I'm sitting in the counseling room and thinking, oh my God, what am I going to do here? <laughs> I don't even know if I can help here, right? But this were a couple that came in and they were highly reactive. I mean, in the sense that one partner was deeply traumatized from childhood and just would have this kind of volcanic rage that would just completely scare the living daylights out of her partner and he would just shut down and freeze and honestly the first year it was just that anything that hinted at him not being there for her or being more leaning more towards others in terms of even if it was a waiter or just anyone where it just felt like you're not there for me. You're supporting others. I'm the outsider. She would have such explosive reactions to it. It would be so threatening for her. And just slowing it down, working with them, reframing it in terms of 
him being that important, her being scared, even though she didn't look scared. Like I said, it was like volcanic rage, you know. Um, gradually, they were able to begin to talk heart to heart. He could talk about what's going on for him when he freezes. She could start talking about the fear of not being lovable, of being seen as a monster, the fear, the anger that takes her over that feels like it's not even her. She's been taken over by the rage rather than that is something she's doing to him. It's more like it's doing it to me, right? And as they gradually began to see, to work together like that, to see that relationship now be such a safe haven where both people can open up and talk about their most vulnerable feelings, him, his fear of inadequacy or fear of, I'll never be able to get it right. I don't see the world the way you see it. And her to be able to just talk about this sense of not being worthy of being loved that has her so finely attuned to any signs of rejection. And for him then to be able to see her as not scary, but scared, that's just been transformational. Wow. And, I, and I suppose for me, the reason why this couple are so important to me is because there are times, you know, even as a therapist, you know, we're human. We sit in that room and we just suddenly feel it completely de-skilled and inadequate, like, oh, my God, I can't seem to slow this dynamic down. This is overwhelming. It becomes even triggering for the therapist. But to really see that transformation in that couple is really, really just kind of like embedded in, in me that if I can create safety, if I can help a couple unite against their cycle and begin to see it as the enemy, if I can begin to help them see that just what's going on here is that they are so important to each other that they actually inadvertently scare each other. If I can help them have these heart-to-heart conversations where they feel safe enough to share their underbelly, that they can reclaim their relationship, that they can take it back. I mean, to, to witness that and to see it from such reactivity to, to just them being a safe haven for each other, that's just what keeps me centered and balanced in the room. Because I know if we can restore safety and connection, they will have each other's back. They'll be there for each other. Mm-hmm. The answer to that question, are you there? Do you care? Will be yes, 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 of, yes, of course. Thank you so much for sharing that story. I love it. And I think, again, it brings up some really important points I want to just emphasize. Because you also mentioned that this process involves talking in a vulnerable way about our actual needs and emotions. And I think that comes a bit back to the way that we grow up and how we were raised in this individualized society that we learned that we shouldn't express vulnerability and that we shouldn't show weakness that we should always look confident and we feel that we should be competent and know everything. So it's terrifying to do that. And so therefore often we are unable to recognize or express what we actually need because we simply are not in touch with that because we learned that we should just have to get have it all together. So it's so difficult to express in a vulnerable way and say, you know what, I need you to make me feel that I'm the most important one at the party or whatever that need might be. And I don't know many men who would be able to say that because that would make them feel that they're not, you know, that they have to stay in this fakeness where they pretend that they're always confident and have it all together. And as he, even though I don't know what to do. I don't know what it is you need from me. I feel like I'm doing my best and somehow it never feels enough. I, I, I'm confused. Yeah. 
try to fix it and solve it because that's like you said that's what you're taught right like you have to have the answer you have to have the solution yeah. and very few men if in such circumstances might see themselves as the solution like you don't have to go looking for a solution because you are the solution you know you being there is the solution you seeing me hearing me holding me is the solution that is such an important point and i hear a lot of people saying i want more freedom or my partner's too controlling and through this lens that you're providing so beautifully on this podcast we can start seeing that controlling behavior is just somebody feeling anxious or unsafe and when we can create that safety for them then the controlling behavior is very likely to also diminish and become less and less because we only need to control when we feel unsafe I guess the solution to that is not to have a logical discussion. It's to figure out what are the needs to create that safety for my partner. And then automatically they will experience that they get more and more freedom. Yeah, so, you know, the more securely attached we are, the more we can, the more autonomous we can be. It's ironical, right? It's, mm. it's like the more you feel connected to your partner, the easier it is to give them the freedom because you trust that they will go and they'll come back to you. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you, it's not that it makes you more, it's, it's not that it makes you weaker. It's just that the more, the more you can feel, because that, you know, whatever the quarrel is, ultimately the underlying music is, is an attachment struggle is, are you going to be there? Can I count on you? Can I depend on you mm. when I need you? Yeah. Right. That's the underlying music that's playing. So, but you you might be arguing about why didn't you bring help me bring in the shopping? But it's actually about can I count on you when I need you? And that's the whole different way of looking at it. Um, in terms of that, we are just trying to get that need met of having a strong sense of belonging, yeah. of connection, of safety, and of acceptance from yeah. our beloved. There is such a beauty in accepting that as well. And of course, I can only talk about the perspective as a man. But I know when I started accepting that I had these needs, oh, it opened up so much beauty in my relationship, even with my partner now that I'm with. And the way that in the beginning, um, I'd now come to terms and accepted the needs I had for safety. And I would say very early on, I have a need for us to be clear of what we're doing here. Are we dating others? Are we exclusive? And I think she was a bit taken aback. She was like, wow, that's very early to bring up that discussion. And I said, yeah, but I'm not just mental about what you want. I just have a need and it makes me feel safe if I know what we're doing. And I can only really open up if I feel safe because I acknowledged and accepted my needs and expressed that. And then she was able to meet it, which she obviously couldn't have if I hadn't expressed it. And that opened up the safe space because, you know, we could both be really vulnerable about our needs. And then we're able to give that to each other as well. Well, you know what? That just sounds so beautiful because, you know, Thomas, you cannot easily ask for what you need unless you know what you need and you're clear that it's your, you are actually, that that need is valid, yeah. right? <laughs> like that is even okay to have that need, right? Yeah. And especially if you, if, if a person has grown up without really having, you know, bless them, caregivers that were able to meet those needs, right? So what does a child do then? You learn that you have to take care of yourself, mm -hmm. that you have to be self-sufficient, and you learn that it's not okay to have me, right? Yeah. Then how can you reach to your partner and ask for something that you don't even feel like you should, that you 
that is valid for you to even ask for, right? So it sounds like you got to a place where you kind of went, ah, this is normal. There's not, this is completely legitimate and normal. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I can put my needs on the table. <laughs> and you know, emotional focus therapy was what helped me learn and accept that that was a normal human need. Before that, I felt ashamed and therefore would never express it. I would pretend to be confident, but then didn't create the safety and make it possible to relate. And I used to tell people I never really felt I loved an adult, only my children. And they would say, oh, that's so sad. And when I got this realization, I realized why I've never been able to create the safety where I could just be vulnerable. And without being vulnerable, it's hard to experience love, right? Because we feel like somebody's just seeing this fake version of us. Well, I mean, as soon as you allow someone to matter to you, which is why it's so hard, right? Like, actually, it's a given. The minute you allow someone to matter to you, you become vulnerable, mm. right? Yeah. Because if nothing else, you become vulnerable to them dying. <laughs> Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Like, even if you have a great relationship, you're vulnerable to the loss of that great relationship. It's, a, it's almost like a declaration of failure to say you need couple therapy very early in your relationship. But the truth is that actually, if your relationship matters, wouldn't you give it life support? Yeah, a checkup. I love that. Thank you for saying that, by the way. Um, that is so good. You said that. I see that with my current partner. One of the things I said to her in the beginning is that I think every six months we should go to an emotional focus therapy just for a few sessions. And she said, that's a great idea because I think the biggest issue is that people often wait until so much resentment has built up and the emotional bank account is in big overdraft. And at that point, it's really difficult to restore it, you know, because there's not much energy or goodwill left to do so. But if we go every six months, we can actually catch these before they become visual cycles. But I, but I remember when I went to the, when I started my training, and I remember the lecturer saying, we are programmed for relationships. And I just felt something inside me click. It was, I just thought, oh, there is nothing wrong with me. This is normal. Because I felt so needy. I felt so horribly demanding and needy, right? <clears throat> like there was something wrong with me. And it was just like, oh my God, this is normal. We're programmed for relationships. We're wired to love. We're social mammals, you know. That just, I remember that feeling even till today, just how helpful it was to know that that was normal. Thank that you. is not to be ashamed of. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, just giving people permission again, and like you said, normalizing it. I think this is why I want to do this podcast, because I think getting this understanding out there is so important, and that we need to get rid of this idea that we are individuals who can just flourish on our own and don't need others, and it's somehow wrong to need others. I hear this so often, that's ne oh, that's needy, and I keep saying, why do we have a need to judge these people in the first place? Because maybe they're not needy. Maybe they just had some experience that gives them a need to know that they're safe. Because that's really all it is. And why do we actually have to c categorize them in the first place? And, you know, when we can stop these shameful categorization, people can open up. And then it becomes really easy in many instances to restore that trust and create that safety they need to flourish. 
Exactly. And, you know, I really like, because we're talking a lot about sort of the pursuer strategy of demanding or needing or pursuing for connection. But I also really want to hold the avoidant withdrawal strategy because, you know, both strategies, uh, strategies to try and connect or protect a relationship or, uh, you know, protest the lack of connection and both strategies, it takes a lot of pain and suffering to learn either to pursue or to withdraw, like, you know, to withdraw as the only way to keep safe or to pursue as the only way. There's a lot of pain and suffering that's been learned underneath these strategies. And what gets seen is the behavior, Mm. but not that feeling underneath it, you know. Thank you for bringing that up. And what I found is that often understanding the why behind someone's actions creates empathy in a relationship. If we understand the why, it's easier to not be judgmental. So maybe we could quickly judge, touch in general terms on these two main attachment styles of anxious and avoidant attachment. Would you be able to just explain why people might act avoidant or why they might act anxiously? So people, if they sit out there and recognize their partner, they might be able to have a bit more understanding for their partner. Well, I mean, some of it is down to personality, right? I mean... Some of it feels to be gender typical, but it's not necessarily. A lot of men can be withdrawers, as in avoidant, uh, avoidant conflict. But also, now more and more, I see a lot of women presenting as avoidant. Um, and basically, a lot of it is, again, down to you know who you are as a person. But a lot of it is what we learned in childhood, right? So um, from the key attachment figures in our lives right so if uh, it wasn't safe to be to express you know needs if it wasn't safe to be you you might just learn or if nobody really attended to your needs and noticed that it was dismissed you know you might develop an avoidance strategy to cope right so you might learn to turn to activities you might learn to turn inside to regulate because no one was there to comfort you and soothe you in a way that was meaningful, right? Mm. And so over time, you learn actually to rely on yourself. Yeah, I guess a person person like that might lose trust that somebody even will meet their needs if they express Exactly, exactly, right. That's what I mean by there's a lot of pain and suffering under these strategies. So Mm. it takes a lot of pain and suffering to realize I'm going to have to rely on myself. It's not terribly conscious, but children will learn, right? Or if you're in a relationship and you you can't seem to connect with your partner or you don't feel safe with your partner, it takes a lot of strength, to re- uh, pain to realize, I'm actually going to have to be self-sufficient and meet my own needs here. Yeah. And then if you're coming from a, if you're sort of a pursuing strategy, it's almost like when it's unpredictable, you just don't know when the love's going to be there or you feel like you have to perform and to get love, right? Yeah. It's like it's there and then it's not there and you sort of learn you can't count on it. Mm. You have to work so hard. I sometimes say to my pursuits, why do you have to work so hard? Like the idea that you could just be loved, that you don't have to earn it, that it's not something that you have that you can actually count on it to be there if there are any parents listening out there which i'm sure there are these are some really important points because this is something where we can really help we can't respond of course to all our children's need all the time as a parent that's just unrealistic 
but we can definitely do our best to be responsive as much as the time as we can. And especially the more important needs. And I also think in regards to what you just said about anxious attachment style, feeling that maybe you have to perform to get that love. I even noticed yesterday with my daughter where she wants something, she'll come and start stroking the back of my head because, you know, it's part of my love language touch. And I actually said to her, you don't need to do this. I love you even if you don't stroke me. And then she stopped and just sat next to me. And I said, you're loved. You don't have to do anything to be loved. And I think as a parent, you know, if we can be aware of these different attachment styles, it can also help us engage in a way with our children where they don't have to become neither anxious or avoidant as adults and can instead become, you know, securely attached and find it much easier to form healthy relationships. I love this point because it helps anyone who's a parent out there and, you know, also apply to romantic relationships. But how can we try to help kids grow up in a way or a partner where they get a more safe and secure attachment style? And I think the way you describe here, it just makes it really clear how we can try and support either our children or our partner in a way where they can hopefully grow up in a more secure way and don't have to grow up anxious. And also I find as a parent, often when parents don't engage with emotions because it feels like emotional overload for them or overwhelming and they struggle to cope with their own emotions as an adult. So they try to shut down the children's um, to make themselves feel more comfortable. Um, and if the parent is uncomfortable and stressed, when a child is crying, they want the child to stop. And I found, for example, with my son, when he got angry, or maybe he would push his sister, then I would sit with him and I'd say that, you know, what is it you really need right now? And, you know, we would get to a point where it became clear that he actually wants attention. So first of all, it helped him learn how to express his needs. And I said, you know, it's also okay to feel angry, but it's how we express it that's important that you need to learn so you can't be violent to your sister but you can certainly go punch the pillow in the sofa and now he will then come sometimes and when he's angry and he'll he say maybe somebody teach him uh, teach him in school and he'll say to me i feel really angry and i'll ask him i said do you want to punch a pillow and then he'll say yes and he'll punch it until he's tired and he's learned that it's okay to be angry it's how we process those emotions and we don't have to let them out on other people and it's finding that healthy way to release emotions without causing harm and restore our nervous system. And of course, if we can do the same in our relationships, it's really beneficial. Well, that's beautiful, right? It's basically creating an emotionally friendly environment where it is safe. Because, you know, like my younger daughter, on the other hand, who's 13, she said to me one day, Mommy, I figured it out. Adults are just grown up children. <laughs> And I thought that is exactly it, right? So you have a grown-up who's got a little child inside whose feelings were not held and therefore doesn't know how to hold mm. their child upset because they were not soothed, they were not comforted when they were sad, yeah. right? So they need to say, don't cry, dry your tears, right? Not because they don't care, but just that's what they know, right? So trying to create an emotionally friendly environment where all the emotions, anger, sadness, shame, you know, fear, joy, excitement, curiosity, just a place where it's safe to have these emotions mm. so that we don't turn away from our emotions and become avoidant towards them, yeah. but actually we can be with them. Uh, and, you know, to do that, 
that that actually we talk a lot about emotional presence and sometimes people will say in therapy i just don't know what you mean but you want me to be present they say that to their partner i don't know what you mean what do you mean what's this emotional presence anyway and it's hard to understand actually it took me a while to understand actually you know this is not something that people necessarily know what that means and being emotionally present just you know means being able to stay with the emotion just being able to be with it like what your partner or your child is feeling or your friend is feeling without having to fix it because the solution is you just being there hearing it mm-hmm. witnessing it that that is the solution that that that's enough because yeah. often as parents as spouses we want to fix it we want to take the emotion away and actually that leaves the person alone and unaccompanied in the feeling that they're having anyway right so there's something about understanding that it's enough to just hear it see it witness it i hope that, i hope all the men out there are listening very closely right now because yeah, I, 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 have funny, I, i have a funny story about that i have a funny story i was working with a couple where he said Um, she said, you, you just weren't present. And it was, I'm not going to go into the specifics, but she said, you were just not present. And he just, we explored it some more. And actually, what he confessed to was, you know, in that moment, I could see you were struggling, but I didn't know what to do. Yeah. And, and because I didn't know what to do, I guess I just said to myself, she's all right. Mm. Well, he thought he was confessing to the, a crime, basically. And the crime being, I didn't know what to do, right? Yeah. And when when he said that, you know, because you know, enough safety for him to be able to say that, she goes, "This is what I've been longing to hear. This is this is all I ever wanted from you. That tells me you're not indifferent. That tells me you do care. Because when you just don't do anything, I conclude you don't care." And he said he looked really confused. He was like, "What? What? <laughs> I, I just told you I didn't know what to do." And she said, and I said, you know what you're doing right now? You're being emotionally present. You're telling her exactly where you were. And that's all, that's all this being emotional present is. She just wants to know you. She wants to know your insides. She wants to know how you feel. That's what's being emotionally present. And that was the turning point in therapy. He was practically skipping away from that session because now he understood what that meant, actually. Uh. But he didn't had to fix it it didn't mean you have to have the answers that actually was safe that if he just said i can see you're struggling but i don't know what to do that that would be a solution in itself so i think you know um this being emotionally present is just being emotionally friendly feeling like it's okay and safe it really brings us back to what we talked about earlier about vulnerability right that it's okay to just express because i know as a man having grown up with this concept that men we should always have a solution and i think often as a man we turn away or retreat when we feel we don't have that solution because we feel inadequate right and to a partner that might be understood as you don't care or make them feel left alone unheard or unseen which is really hurtful and it's so freeing as a man to know that you don't have to always be able to fix everything it's totally okay you don't have a solution to everything All the man really has to do is be able to be present and acknowledge, you know, your partner and express yourself in a vulnerable way. Like you said, you are there already. And just doing that is a solution. 
Yeah, yeah, and I know I, c- I can really see, you know, how hard it is, you know, when you grow up in society, the messages that boys and men get, right? It's a complete mind twist to have to <laughs> add around this, right? It's like the opposite of everything that you've been conditioned to believe and expect of yourself. Yeah, that's wonderful. I want to ask you as well, because one of the things that people might be interested in, or listeners might be interested in, is the more common conflict cycles that you might experience and also what things people might be able to do to break some of those cycles. Is that something that you could touch upon in a more general kind of way? Yeah. So, I mean, of of course, you know, the bread and butter of couple therapy is often some a crisis like an infidelity and things like that. But uh, more than often than not, people come because they just say we argue about everything and nothing or we just don't get along or it just just this distance, right? Mm. And um and so when you start to really look at it, what you often see is that the com- most common patterns people get in, into is that underneath whatever issue it is that they're presenting, that they're arguing about, is one person is pursuing, and we've talked about that, the other person is withdrawing Mm. or defending themselves. or withdrawing in silent protest, hearing criticism or hearing that they're failing in some way. So we call that the protest poker. One person is protesting the lack of connection, the other person is hearing criticism and withdrawing. Another one is find the bad guy. You know, when a couple get caught in who who's at fault, basically. It's not me, it's you. Some version of is trying to prove the case that I'm not the bad guy here. And by the way, people wouldn't be bothered to try and prove that if they didn't care enough. Mm. Right? You don't have to pr- – nobody tries to prove that they're not the bad guy if it wasn't that they cared enough that they didn't want to be the bad guy. Do you see what I mean? But often often what happens then is it becomes a case of everybody building a case against the other, right? And so actually we call that find the bad guy because it's a very reactive cycle of mutual blame and mutual shaming. You know, people start to point out each other's flaws and failings. Yeah. And that gets intractable. Now, the most dangerous of all is, of course, distance. So you have fight and flee, flight and flee, sorry, flight and flee, right? Mm-hmm. Where basically both people just feel so unsafe, so exhausted by being in the dance that they give up. They stop sharing. They stop communicating. Mm-hmm. Everybody has left the dance floor. There's no dance. There's nothing. Yeah. Right? And And it's as if everyone's detached themselves to try and avoid getting hurt. So that's, these are the kind of common patterns that couples get into. And when couples come to see me, one of the first things I'm trying to help them do is even recognize that there's a pattern going on because most people get very caught up in the content of the, you know, the issue, like who's doing what, who's saying what, who's overspending, who, you know, too much sex, too little sex, no communication, too little communication, you know, the content of what they're complaining about. And they don't necessarily can slow it down enough to see that the pattern they're getting caught in makes it almost impossible to resolve whatever issue it is. Mm. And so if you can start to see the, that there is a pattern and that that pattern is actually a reflection of the fact that both of you are actually heavily invested in a relationship, I mean, that's already a first step. Yeah. Like you don't need to 
find the bad guy. The bad guy is the dance, this dynamic, this cycle, this repetitive cycle. Then you can even begin to step out of it. Because guess what? If you prove your partner is a bad guy, then what? You're married to the bad guy. Mm. There's no relief in that, is it? No. So a lot of that's the first step. And then the next step is just really helping couples feel safe enough to begin to share their underbelly. Because actually when we share what's in our heart and have these heart-to-heart conversations, it's very heart-melting. It's compelling on the level of a child that's crying. Like very few people can stay angry with a child that's crying, right? Mm. And it's the same thing with couples. When we expose our vulnerability and we stay, I always say to my couples, stay on your own side of the tennis court. Talk about your own feelings, not what your partner's feeling. I mean, it's not easy to do, right? But most of us, like we're trying to say, I miss you. But what we say is you're not there. Your partner hears the you and reacts to the you. But if you were like, I'm missing you and keep to your own experience. Or when you're late, I end up feeling like I'm not important to you. Mm. Not you're late, you don't care. That's talking about your partner. That's not staying on your own side of the tennis court. It's hard to do. I really want to say it. I'm a divorced couple therapist, right? (laughs) I know it's hard. (laughs) I know it's hard, especially when you're dealing with someone, the most important other in your life. But I think some of the things we were talking about brought a bigger picture together for me that I just want to put out there. And of course, you can add if you think something is missing, because people often say, I want to be in a loving relationship. And it's, it's something I just hear a lot. And without really grasping, what does that even mean? And I think we actually touch on all the components here of what that means. So I just want to try and summarize that for our listeners. I feel that the first foundation is safety. And that comes from what we've spent almost an hour talking about, which is that meeting attachment need, recognizing the cycles, etc., to create that safety. And the second part is then being able to express ourselves in a vulnerable way. And the last part is being accepted and seen in that place. And I think we have these three elements that's when love can really flourish. No, that is very well put. And, you know, Sue Johnson in her book, Hold Me Tight, she talks about A-R-E, A standing for accessible, you know, just being open, revealing yourself, (laughs) Mm. being visible. That's, you know, and then R being responsive, right? Like responding to that vulnerability that's being shared, seeing, hearing it. And that's what leads to the E engagement right Mm. so a-r-e being accessible being responsive which leads to engagement that that's that's the component that we're trying to that's what is safety safety is you you can see your partner because your partner is visible they're being open right you can find them you know where they are yeah what's the point of opening up if your partner can't hear you or receive you or isn't receptive. So the other part is the responsiveness, you know, mm. really put our own agenda aside and hear what's being shared. Yeah. And that's what creates what you're talking about there, you know, the safety, the intimacy, that, you know, shared vulnerability. Because let's face it, I think my most important message is to all you courageous people out there who are risking opening up your hearts to let love in and to love another person is, to accept that is the one of the most vulnerable things you can do. Yeah. 
is to love another being. But not to do it can also be one of the most lonely things and isolating things you can ever do. It's worth the risk to open up. I could not agree more. And as someone who spent almost 30 years feeling disconnected from the partners I was with, I can only say now, being in a loving relationship, how incredible it is and freeing to be able to open up in a vulnerable way that I never felt a man should do. And because I guess I had so much shame around being vulnerable. And, you know, as a child, love is to be seen and accepted and feel safe with your parents, right? And to be able to just be without having to be what our parents want us to be or be ashamed. And essentially, that's the same you want as an adult. We want safety and we want to be able to express vulnerably who we are and somebody who can accept that without shaming us. And that's where love really flourishes. And it's I think it's the same as a child as it is as an adult fundamentally, right? And the only difference is that with adults, it needs to be two-way, right? Mm. It's mutuality. It's about equality and mutuality, right? Yeah. Whereas with children, you know, the parents, we're given the care, right? Of course. And often, often, we often treat our relationships as if, well, we wouldn't treat a plant the way we treat our relationships. We just kind of... <laughs> Take it home from the shop, put it on the windowsill and forget to water it, right? Yeah. And somehow, what would happen to that plant? And it's a bit like that with relationships. We have to nurture it with those open-hearted conversations. I think here at the end, I was just wondering, do you have an exercise for people sitting out there who are nodding and resonating with all this? Maybe an exercise that people could try with their partner today. If they feel stuck in some of these patterns, whether they withdraw or they start blaming their partner. And I know it's better to go to a professional focused therapist, but if they want to try something and see if they can reach their partner, if they're not in a very bad state, is there anything that comes to mind that maybe they could try out? Well, um, it, this is an exercise that comes actually from the Hold Me Tight workshops I run um, with my colleague. Um, when I, it's one of the first conversations we have, we help people talk about what do you do when you're vulnerable? What do you usually do? Because you can be sure that the very thing you do is what scares your partner. Mm -hmm. So I would just have a, just have a five minute conversation on each side where you don't interrupt your partner. You use a kitchen timer. And just for five minutes, one person talks about when I suddenly do not feel connected to you. What happens for me is dot, dot, dot. So take a moment to really think about what is it that happens for me inside. I get scared, for instance. Mm -hmm. I feel shaken. I f whatever, right? So when I suddenly feel, do not feel safely connected to you, what happens for me is dot, dot, dot. And what I tend to do is, and then tell your partner the behavior. Because that's what your partner sees. They don't see what's on the inside of you. They see what you do to cope with that vulnerable, that vulnerable moment. Mm. Now, that in itself. So, for instance, I tend to complain. I tend to get critical. Or if you're, that's if you're a pursuer. But if you're a withdrawer, you might, I might stay calm and reason with you or shut down and shut you out, stop listening and numb out, change the subject. Just that each person just beginning to look at what is it that happens for me in those moments when I don't feel safely connected? Because that the trigger for that is different from one person to another. So it's important that each person takes five minutes at least to just 
think about it and share that. Because the key thing, of course, the whole message of this is to love is to be vulnerable. Yeah. So we, so if, if you're going to love, you're going to be vulnerable. That's the first thing to accept. I love that exercise. Uh, it's a short example because I've actually done this exercise. It could sound, I guess, something like this that I would say to my partner is, when I'm unable to fix the problems that you present to me, then I feel really inadequate and it just makes me shut down and want to run away because I don't want to face a feeling of feeling inadequate. That's beautiful. That is exactly it, right? And then, of course, if you really want to take it forward, then you can ask your partner, but in those moments, how do you read me? <laughs> mm, wonderful. Right? How, do, how do you read me? So this in itself is a way to actually begin to see that the more you, the more I, the more I shut down because I feel inadequate, the more you raise your voice and you tell me more things and then I feel even more inadequate and we are stuck. Beautiful. That was the goal that people have been listening for an hour to get. And I think that exercise is wonderful. I've done it myself and it can be really connecting and provide a lot of insight and understanding into our partner. So Elena, what I also want to quickly ask you before we finish off today is where can people find you if they want to know more about what you do, whether it's professional training or they might be interested in you as a therapist? Do you have a website where people can reach out to you? Yeah, so um, I have a website, counseling for the number four couples.co.uk. Yeah. And you know, on that website, you can find out more about me. Also, find out about EFT training here in England. Um, also, the Hold Me Tight workshops. But I also really want to mention another important website where it has a listing of EFT trained therapists in the UK. So it's called beftcenter.org. And BEFT is B-E-F-T, center.org, one word, beftcenter.org. And it has, you know, a listing of Hold Me Tight workshops, EFT training, EFT therapists. So that would be the go-to place here in England to yeah. actually, if you want to find out more about EFT or, you know, how to, you know, different things you can access. Perfect. And if they want to reach out to you directly, I presume they go to your website and there'll be an email they can contact you on, right? Yes, counsellingforcouples.co.uk. It has been a very enjoyable conversation and thank you for being so open, Thomas, and sharing. You were modeling exactly what the whole thing was about. <laughs> oh, wonderful. That's why it's wonderful to have these you know, conversations because I feel, yeah, it just makes it more dynamic to try and get mm -hmm. the points across. Yeah, no, thank you very much. That was enjoyable. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you go to the website sensor.com, then I recommend you check out the one hour free webinar where you'll learn the four reasons that relationships break down and it's probably not what you think. How your attachment style may fuel conflict with your partner. This is a big aha moment for couples. Discover if your habits cause conflict and what you can do about it. I'll answer tons of questions we got from couples over the years. And you'll learn why people cheat and the one tip that can prevent it. And uncover how you can unlock your partner's hidden desires so they share them with you and not someone else. The three-step formula to lasting love. You'll discover the simple psychology of love and how you can apply it immediately. 
Um, so learn that framework and the free practical solutions to lasting passion in long-term relationships. And if you're really serious, committed to having an amazing relationship, then also check out the Sita Love membership program and monthly subscription program or the Soma eight-week online relationship masterclass on the website. Um, all the links are in the podcast description. So thank you so much for listening today and I will see you next week.